Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast for the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, your host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon, and publishes those in, with detailed reports in the quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, otherwise known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the Observer's Notebook, you can donate it to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5 you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you will receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash observersnotebook. A reminder, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers maintains many individual observing sections and programs devoted to the study of various solar system bodies and phenomenon. Each is managed by one or more coordinators that collect and study the submitted observations. If you would like to join the ALPO, you can for as little as $14 a year. For more information, you can visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And now, The Observer's Notebook. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. We have a special guest today. We we're actually recording at the Graham Conference in uh, Athens, Georgia, during October uh, 2017. And today I'm talking to Roger Venable of the Mars Section. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. The Graham Conference, the Georgia Regional Astronomy Meeting. That must be it, yes. And it's a mixture of professional and amateur astronomers, and ALPO has a good presence here and actually co-sponsoring the meeting this year. They've had it every year for about 17 years, and it's mostly been professional astronomers and their students who um, give poster presentations and and, uh, talks on their research. So ALPO members are here in force today. Oh, that's great. I'm enjoying it so far. We're about halfway through the sessions. Uh, Roger, why don't you just give everybody a little bit of background about yourself before we get started? All right. Well, let's see. What should I say? I am now of retirement age. Congratulations. Um, I uh, was born in upstate New York and uh, lived there for my first 29 years. Um, uh, I moved to Georgia then, and I've lived there for about 38 years now. I am an emergency room physician, and uh, I enjoy still working a little bit, and I live in a dark sky area in rural Georgia. 
Oh, fantastic. Now, what got you into the ALPO? Or at, before that, what started your interest in astronomy? Well, I've been a stargazer since I was 10. I remember learning the, the, uh, the stars, the constellations in that first go-round of the year, watching the seasons change in the sky when I was 10 years old and uh, had a cheap, lousy pair of binoculars. And uh, you know how it is when you're young and imaginative, you point your lousy, aberrational binoculars at, uh, at Sirius and you swear you can see the pup of the dog star when you can't, of course. <laughs> you know, went through all that stuff when I was very young. Um, got a four-inch uh, criterion reflector sometime about when I was 12 or so. My brother and I had it together, and we would uh, see the Messier objects. I think I saw them all back then when I was, by the time I was uh, halfway through high school, we'd seen most of those things and had started to look at the planets. I remember my my first uh, really interested looks at Mars were with that telescope uh, when I was in college, and I remember I came home on vacation one time, and uh, that was 1971 uh, for a, a close uh, opposition that year. And uh, oh, that was a big one. That was yeah, that was a, a big, a, a real good one. And uh, I remember I could see a couple of, of uh, blue spots on Mars, and uh, and then I looked again, and I couldn't see them. And I think there might have been a dust storm that's that intervened, right? That's right. There was a huge dust storm in 1971. That's <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, that's that's probably the first uh, really interested observations of Mars I made. And uh, but you can imagine then that for I've been looking at Mars for years. Yeah, so. so you are now currently the uh, coordinator for the Mars section. And how long have you had that position? Uh, Don Parker and Julius Benton approached me about it in 2008 and asked me to do it. Uh, Don, I think, was active coordinator at that time, and he needed to step down, so I sort of took over. And uh, it's been a lot of work, actually, uh, just uh, uh, grabbing thousands of images uh, that uh, amateurs take and then trying to study them. And only now have I gotten to Ken Pashedley for publication, the report of the 2007-2008 apparition, which is going to be a long report, has uh, 43 figures and six tables. It's uh, sort of a, a really big work. Yeah, I remember I joined the ALPO in the 70s, and it was, that section had the rock stars of planetary observers. It had Don Parker, it had Chick Cape, and Tom Dobbins, you know, the whole, mm -hmm. those guys were just, Jeff Beach, I mean, they were amazing guys to, the work that they did back then was just, you know, groundbreaking. So the Mars section I know is a popular section and this coming year 2018 we're going to have a really special opposition. Can you tell us something about it? Yeah it should be a good opposition. It'll be the closest one since 2003. 2003 uh, some some listeners may recall was the closest opposition for the next uh, few thousand years and at that time Mars appeared in the telescope to have a um, apparent angular diameter of uh, 25.2 arc seconds and this apparition on the 28th of uh, August in 2018 it'll have a uh, diameter of uh, 24.3 arc seconds so uh, almost an arc second smaller but it's still one of the it's the closest opposition of this 15 year opposition cycle and the last uh, closer one we had prior to 
2003 was back in 71. So, you know, this is, for many people, is going to be the last close opposition of their lifetimes or it's going to be the last one for 15 years, you know, and, and uh, this is an opportunity in 2018 to really get some good views of Mars. Now, how is the Mars section preparing for this opposition? Well, you know, I think uh, interest is high, and we hear that from people. Um, we, it's not as though the section coordinates what people are doing other than just to try to give them positive feedback, but people are... Uh, are wanting to have really good views of Mars and they're upgrading their equipment and things and planning to make observations of Mars, this, this apparition. The best observing time is going to be right through the center of 2018. We usually think that observing uh, Mars when it's over six arc seconds in diameter is useful and that, that's sort of a traditional way to look at it. And that begins in the middle of February and lasts until the middle of February 2019, so about a year where Mars will be uh, well, uh, well positioned and, and uh, at a size where you can make useful observations. It'll be, uh, let's see, the uh, period of western quadrature I often like to use to, to eastern quadrature, that is when Mars is 90 degrees from the sun, uh, it appears in the sky, you know, at sunset to be right on your meridian or on, at sunrise to be right on your meridian. And, and so that time is, uh, is uh, what I usually think of as the optimal time to observe. And during those times, it'll be about uh, eight, sec eight arc seconds in diameter at the start and nine arc seconds uh, at the finish. That, that'll last from uh, late March of 2018 to, uh, let's see right up to about uh, December of, I'm sorry, late March of 2018 to early December of 2018. So we're going to have some really good good observations. And, and you know, amateurs have continued to uh, improve their equipment and their skill, and we're seeing uh, more detail in the last few oppositions, uh, the last few apparitions of Mars than we did uh, 10 years ago. Even though the techniques are very similar, we haven't changed the techniques, but the skill of amateurs and the equipment has improved so that we actually are getting more detailed images. It's really remarkable what we sometimes see. Some of the images are astounding, sub-arc second uh, representations of the planet, you know. Okay, well, let's talk about equipment a little bit. Uh, what do you feel is the minimum equipment one should use when observing Mars? Well, you know, it, it's really not fair to people with uh, limited means to say what the uh, equipment should be. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I'm delighted if anyone has an interest in Mars and if he has a 60 millimeter refractor or a pair of binoculars, have at it, you know, uh, and I'd be interested in hearing a report. You know what you can do with binoculars? You can make color judgments of Mars and <laughs> that stuff will record and print, you know, because <laughs> we don't get a whole lot of color judgments. You can always find something to do. Um, and a lot of people have succeeded in, in seeing some of the albedo features of Mars, and particularly the polar caps, with a 60 millimeter refractor. I usually uh, say, say to make what we call, quote, useful, unquote, observations in which you're contributing to our monitoring of clouds and dust storms, probably uh, a, uh, a six inch refractor or an eight inch schmidt cassegrain or a reflector is sort of the minimum that will really give really useful observations. 
There's one very active observer in France who uses a four-inch refractor and he makes excellent drawings and makes a lot of them. So a few skilled people are able to use smaller telescopes than what I usually think of as the minimum and still make very good observations. Okay, well that brings up another good point. You mentioned observations and you have drawings and are those still an ex I mean, in this day and age of CCD cameras and the type of imaging we can do and post-processing and stacking, are drawings still useful? Uh, yes. Uh, let me, From the guy who runs the training program, that's really good to hear. <laughs> let, me, let me just give you an example. Uh, right now, and, and for uh, a couple of generations, there's been some uh, lack of understanding about the development of the opacity of the North Polar Cap while it's under the North Polar Hood. Now that's not going to be an issue in the coming apparition, but I just bring this up as an example of how drawings are useful and visual observations are useful. It turns out that when visual observers look at the North Polar Hood, they describe it as blue. <laughs> this is astounding. You know, the imagers all make it look white in their images, you know. But when visual observers describe it as blue, then you understand red light penetrates the North Polar Hood and it shows the North Polar region to be dark, not white. Dark and red light. No wonder it looks blue. There's less red light coming through the Polar Hood. And this is the reason for, perhaps, for the historical confusion about when the North Polar Cap forms. And uh, some people say, well, since it looks dark and red light, it must not be formed yet. And yet we have spacecraft data from uh, radar that uh, identifies ice at the North Polar Cap. So we knows, know that the North Polar Cap has formed at those times, even when it looks dark in red light. And the conclusion, based in part upon visual observers describing it as blue, is that it really isn't reflective of red light because it's pure carbon dioxide. This is the seasonal polar cap, not the permanent cap, right. not, the, uh, not what we call the residual cap. And so the seasonal cap forms as uh, frozen carbon dioxide and then as the north polar hood dissipates, it snows and it turns opaque and white so that it no longer looks blue. And we act actually can see it forming as a ring, uh, forming first at the edges of the north polar cap we see the white occurring, and then it spreads up toward the pole. And so this is something that amateurs have detected by serial observations, extensive observations of the North Polar Cap. And uh, I'm meaning, uh, perhaps with the help of Jim Melka, to get this published too. But uh, and Jim's the assistant recorder for the yeah, section. Yeah, that's right. But you know, I just have too many things to publish. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, uh, I've got. Uh, a couple of observations of visual observers that uh, at a time when people were uh, imaging the North Polar Cap as dark and red light and visual observers looking at the North Polar Hood over it find that it looks blue and I say, ah, that's it. Mm. You know, that's it. It's not reflecting red because it, it hasn't snowed yet on the North Polar Cap. You see what I mean? Yeah, I see. And that's, so that's, the whole thing looks blue, the color of the cloud. That's interesting. <laughs> wow. So, okay, so that's the visual uh, drawings. What about uh, imaging? What, what are you looking for in that way? Well, um, you know, everybody's going to do what they can do. And, you know, I, rather than say that uh, we need to look for a certain type of images, 
the best thing is to image as often as you can because um, your, uh, your identification of peculiar clouds or dust storms is largely going to be fortuitous. Now, there will be times, if you're following the message list, you know, there will be times when you are alerted to a dust storm or peculiar clouds and you can point your telescope at Mars and observe them. That's great when that happens, but most of the time that's not the way it is. Most of the time we monitor clouds and dust storms by people just committing themselves to regular observations or doing it as often as they can, and we find these things as incidentals in their images. Okay, now what do you mean by message list? Oh, uh, we have a message list... uh, on the Yahoo uh, uh, groups, you know, groups at yahoo.com or something. And uh, the uh, message list has over 1,400 members. So if you post something, there will be read by more than 1,400 people around the world who are interested in observing Mars. Most of them are not ALPO members. The point well, is, uh, we don't have fourteen hundred ALPO <laughs> members. And the point is that you know, although we work as the ALPO section, and there are, you know, uh, several four hundred or something ALPO members, four hundred fifty or something like that, we have more observers than that who are contributing uh, images and drawings and even just written uh, descriptions. So uh, people should feel free to contribute even if they're not members, you know, just uh, send us your observations. Best thing to do is just get on the Yahoo Mars observers list and uh, that's, uh, uh, and just post your images there in the, in the photo section. Okay, that sounds good. Um, is there much professional and amateur collaboration in the Mars section? Not much. <laughs> that's right sarcasm, now. right? <laughs> well, Professionals on Mars uh, are primarily engaged now in what you might think of as geology. You know, the spacecraft are uh, uh, imaging surface features and they're studying them intently, uh, uh, discovering the uh, history of ice and water on the planet and Um, looking for uh, volcanic activity, studying the ages of all the surfaces, and so on. And it's, it's, uh, of course, it involves astronomy, but it's uh, a lot of geology involved. And that's not what we do in the Mars section. Um, We're involved with observing Mars with a telescope. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, we can follow clouds and weather and dust storms, and as well as, uh, you know, albedo features and so on. There are some mysteries about Mars. Uh, We may be on the way to solving some of them. I think it's premature for me to comment on them, but an example is blue clearing. There is a phenomenon (coughs) where uh, (coughs) sometimes in blue light with a Raton 47 filter, you can see the albedo features of Mars, but most of the time with that filter, you cannot see the albedo features. You just see clouds and uh, a sort of a just a medium blue background of the planet Mars without any surface albedo features. And it's not clearly known why sometimes you can't see the surface and sometimes you can. And there are several factors that are uh, possible contributors, uh, such as the amount of water vapor or the amount of dust or the uh, phase angle of Mars. And uh, rather than comment on that specifically, I would just say that, uh, because the uh, jury is out on it, I would just rather say that what we need is regular observations 
that can be used to study uh, <coughs> what's called blue clearing on Mars. And that means good images or uh, drawings or visual descriptions of the amount of blue clearing. How to do that is in the Mars Observer's Guide that Jeff Beesh has placed on the ALPA website. It's called the Mars Observer's Cafe. We generally describe blue clearing on a scale of zero to three, <coughs> where zero is you can't see any albedo features with a retin filter number 47, and three is where you can see them pretty handily and grade it in between with a one or two if, if appropriate. So, <coughs> but that type of observation is useful, particularly in correlating an individual's observations over time to see how the, uh, the blue clearing changes with uh, you know, changes in uh, the, size, the amount of clouds or changes in the uh, polar hoods indicating moisture in the atmosphere, uh, changes in dust, such as uh, dust storms present in the atmosphere, changes in the uh, phase angle, and so on. All of these things are being studied as possible contributors to blue clearing. So that sounds like a topic that's going to be uh, investigated during this opposition. Mm -hmm. And yeah, using Jeff's uh, information that's available on the ALPL website, people can go there freely and download it and see how to make the observations of the blue clearing. That, that's right. Jeff's Mars Observer Cafe is in the Mars section, uh, part of the website. If you go to the ALPO website, which is, I think it's alpo-astronomy.org, uh, you look on the left, there's a list of sections on the left, and you'll find Mars section. You click on that, and you come up with the Mars section page. There's another list of information sites on the right, and you, as you scroll down that, you'll find the Mars Observer's Cafe. When you click on that, you get to approximately 10 articles by Jeff Beach, which describe Mars and how to observe it, and it's a goldmine of information about Mars and how to observe it. So. That's great. I'll add a link to those areas on the show notes that go yeah. along with the podcast. Great. Now, you mentioned Rattan 47. Now, some of our listeners are not... Um, um, novice observers, some of them are just starting out. Explain color filters and how they're used. <laughs> All right, well, let me say firstly that uh, color filters are used differently for imagers and visual observers. Um, <clears throat> for visual observers, we usually encourage them to use color filters that have been used historically on Mars, going way back to Schiaparelli and Antonati, Antoniati and Lowell. And uh, they actually didn't use red filters usually, they use yellow filters, but uh, we have um, sort of adapted the Rattan filters to observations of Mars for, oh, I don't know, I think it's less than 100 years now, but, you know, it's a, it's a long time. Um, the bl blue filter, uh, Rattan 47, is some call a violet filter, it's a deep blue filter or violet filter. Um, and these are old-fashioned filters, absorption uh, filters. Uh, generally, they, they uh, originally were made of gel for photography, and now they make them uh, uh, out of glass, and they screw into your eyepiece, you know, and you can get them from Orion. And they're inexpensive uh, as far as filters go. Yeah, I think they run like $15 a piece. Yeah, and they, 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 they change the way you see the planets. Right, they really do. And, and uh, Don Parker used to... Uh, joke uh, back when the book Real Men Don't, Don't Eat Quiche, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche, there was a book back from about the 1980s or something, and he would joke, uh, real men use filters. <laughs> that sounds and, like the uh, <laughs> You know, 
And uh, the idea is that you see more on the planets when you uh, use filters, um, and uh, that's just the way it is. You know, you use a narrow band, narrower band than vi- integrated visible light, and, and you wind up bringing out a lot of detail. On Mars, with a blue filter, you see clouds primarily. And you the see, blue 47. Yeah, and you see very little of the surface, if any. And usually you can see the polar caps with the blue 47 filter. And with a green filter, I like to use the Rattan 58. There are some other green filters that can be used, but the Rattan 58 tends to penetrate some to the surface, so you see a fair view of the surface, and um, you, you don't see clouds so prominently. And when you don't see clouds with the blue, and you do see a white area with the green, it means you're dealing with surface frost, and so or very low-lying clouds or fog on the ground. So that's that's a useful observation to compare the green and the blue views. The red tends to penetrate clouds, so you generally don't see any clouds or frosts or fogs at all, and the red light just penetrates them. So we can use a red filter like the Rattan uh, number 25, which I prefer. Some people with especially smaller apertures might prefer a Rattan number 23. Then. Um, you you have the surface features stand out very strongly, and the albedo features of Mars are in high contrast. And the, the polar caps still look white. You know. Okay, yeah, I remember going back. I was at a star party, and I had my 4-inch refractor, and I was looking at Jupiter, and there was a gentleman next to me with a 10-inch Newtonian looking at Jupiter. I had a, a Radon ADA blue filter in mine. He had no filter in his, and people would come up and look at my telescope and look at his. It looks so much better in yours, and I didn't tell him I had a filter in my yeah, telescope. Had a filter. But that, and that's that. right, and it brings out those bands, and, uh, yeah. and uh, that's right, and, and a green will do that on Jupiter, too. Right, yeah. right, it's pretty so. amazing. So, what are your plans for the opposition? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's a little early yet, and I, I, ha- I, by the way, we are already receiving observations from this apparition, uh, Mars is only uh, uh, right now a little less than four arc seconds in diameter. Wow. It's absolutely tiny in the yeah. more than nor, uh, in the morning sky, but uh, we're already see- receiving some observations. Um, I suspect that I'm going to uh, get out my 14-inch Schmidt Cassegrain that I've been using for occultations, and I'll uh, uh, set it up with a uh, a nice uh, set of uh, 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 a focuser that I, I don't have to touch the telescope for, mm-hmm. you know, a little motorized right. focuser, and a, a filter wheel with uh, red, green, and blue filters, and try to do some uh, three-color imaging of Mars. Um, I, I was going to say that uh, uh, that for imaging, the optimal filters are different from the optimal filters for visual use. I don't recommend Rattans, uh, the old Kodak filters, uh, partly because they're uh, they're, uh, the, uh, the, the Rattans have a low light penetration. So the, the Rattan number 47, I, I may have the number wrong, but it lets through something like 11% of the total light. And it's, it makes it quite dark. Mm. And, and with imaging, you really you don't want to do that. You want to have a more efficient filter that cuts off sharply the green and the red if you're using a blue filter but lets through about 100% of the blue, you see, and the Rattan doesn't do that. 
And so what we usually do is imagers will buy much more expensive filters that have sharp cutoffs okay. and divide the blue and the green and the red so that they don't overlap much. They have just sharp cutoffs between the colors. That's the optimal condition. And imagers must use, uh, must differentiate between tricolor imaging and be careful about infrared because if your filter, your tricolor filters don't exclude infrared, then you need an infrared excluder to show the colors because your video camera or your, C we'll your chip, you know, your, whether it's CMOS or CCD, is very sensitive to infrared and you have to cut that out to show the, do the tricolor imaging. Now infrared imaging is also useful but for that you'd have to cut out visible. You know, you have to have filters for all that. So, uh, you know, I have some uh, nice filters that will enable me to do tricolor imaging that do cut out infrared. Um, and they're much more expensive than the rattans. The rattans are inexpensive, as I mentioned, but imaging filters are uh, much more expensive. You usually get a set for several hundred dollars or something. Um, the, there's a fundamental correspondence between the need for sharp cutoffs with imaging filters and how we process the images. Because, for example, if you use Photoshop, you'll typically have a three-channel color picture, red, green, and blue. And those channels don't have any overlap. And so what you want to do is you want to put all the red into the red channel, all the green into the green channel, and all the blue into the blue channel, and then make your adjustments. And to the extent that you have overlap, you're just making a mess of things. Okay. You see. So part of the reason then we want sharp cutoffs is with imaging is because of the way we process it with three channels in programs like Photoshop or GIMP. Okay. What what type of CCD camera do you use? Oh, I I have a uh, uh, DMK camera, and darned if I can remember that long number. It's something like a AF104M or something like that. I I, I can't remember the name of it. Okay. You know. um, do you have anything else to add about the upcoming uh, Mars opposition? Well, I get you know. There's a lot I could say about it, but I, you know, for somebody we got time. Who, who just wants who just wants <laughs> advice, all I can say is get out and and look at it at every opportunity and try to you know s set up your telescope and and uh, make some interesting observations. And I think people will really enjoy it once you learn the albedo features and you know what you're looking at. It becomes a delight to see them, and you know it's it's not like it, it's a little like the moon and that you know, you'll see a crater that you hadn't noticed before on the moon, and you'll say, you know, we never saw it quite with this lighting before, and look how this stands out now. It's like that on Mars, too. You know, the Mars won't look quite the same as the last time you looked, and the, the face of Mars that's toward you will be a little different from the face of Mars you saw last time, and you'll see different albedo features in a different light, and they'll look different. It'll be fascinating once it becomes your old friend. By face of Mars, you don't mean the face of Mars that they thought was on Mars years ago, right? Oh, goodness <laughs> gracious. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't exist. Okay, I know. I'm just... All right, well, how can people get a hold of you? Well, um, first of all, I'm on the Mars Observers list, and a lot of people would just email me there. My email is rjvmd at hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S dot net. Great. All right, well, Roger, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Good to see you today, Tim. All right. Talk to you later.
Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank Roger Venable for coming on and giving us an update or, and a preview of uh, this Mars apparition uh, 2018. Get out there with your telescopes and start observing and submit your observations to the ALPO Mars section. We upload a new episode of the podcast every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate that. You can listen on SoundCloud. The link is in the show notes, and we're also available on Google Play and Stitcher. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. If you feel very generous, you can give up to $35 a month while you receive one year's membership in the ALPL and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his continued generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much, Steve. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. You can contact me if you have questions at via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at ObserversNBPod. If you're interested in joining the ALPO, membership begins at only $14 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. You can find the ALPO also on Facebook by searching ALPO Astronomy. And the podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. The ALPO is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>